Thank you, Hamish. Uh, good evening, everyone. Good to see you. Thank you so much for coming along this evening. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. It's on page 61 of the Bible that you were given when you came in. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20, and then I'm going to read verse 14, which is the seventh commandment and the one that we're looking at this evening. Before I go any further, let me pray for us and let me ask God for his help and for his guidance this evening. Father, as the God of faithfulness, as the God of steadfast love for your people, we pray and ask very simply that you speak to us this evening as we study your word so that you would shape us to be a people of faithfulness towards you and towards one another. Help us to hear your words and to tremble this evening but also to love you and to obey your word in thankfulness and gratitude for who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 20 then, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 14 says this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, you shall not commit adultery. Well, please keep your Bible open in front of you. There's one or two places that I think are important for us to dip into this evening as we think about this commandment, as we think about why it's such a significant commandment for God's people as they stand on the border of the promised land in Exodus, and then also as to how we here respond to and live out this commandment as Christians today. I remember around 10 years ago, as an undergraduate student, I attended a debate at the University of Glasgow on the definition of marriage. And it was set up by the University of Glasgow Debating Society. It was open to the public. Anybody could go along and listen in. And there is about as much said that I think could probably have been expressed slightly more graciously as was expressed in the way that was gracious. I suppose in an organized debate context, maybe there's a bit more expectation of force of thought as you share what you believe. But either way, there was a friend of mine who had been asked to go along to join the debating panel and to give his perspective on marriage, on faithfulness within marriage, on what marriage was and wasn't. And he was to do that as a Christian. He was to share his Christian convictions as a member of the Christian Union at the University on Marriage. And I remember that as the debate wound to a conclusion, as the closing arguments came in, somebody who I think was on the panel stood up and said, why do you Christians care so much about all of this? I think that's an excellent question. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to its principles, when it comes to its paradigms and patterns, why does it matter so much? Why do you care? Why does it matter so much to someone who follows the laws of the Lord as to what we think about marriage, faithfulness and adultery? Well, that could be a question that you've been asked by someone. It could be a question that you've asked yourself. 
And I think the Christian view of a faithful marriage, a lifelong promise, a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman to the exclusion of any variation of that design, that view has become increasingly out of step, increasingly out of sync with the world in which we live and the way that it views marriage. So there was a BBC article written as recently as August of last year, which documented the increase of romantic relationships, the higher frequency of romantic relationships where the individuals in the relationship were adding sexual partners to the relationship. Sometimes just the one additional partner, sometimes many, many more besides. And as the article went on, it included advice from therapists it included advice from others suggesting rules and tips to really make the most of that and how to make it really successful. And I'm sure as Christians this evening, we flinch ever so slightly at the way that God's view on a committed marriage is distorted. But why is that the case? Why do followers of Jesus care so much about all of this? Maybe the better question to ask is, why would God want to give his people the seventh commandment? Why would he want marriage protected so carefully? And before we go on to look at that, I want us once again this week to be very, very aware that as we cover themes of faithfulness and unfaithfulness within a marriage, that there are those sitting here this evening, as well as perhaps some listening in online, who themselves have been very, very personally affected and hurt by a broken marriage, by adultery, by divorce, either in our own life or the life of a close friend or family member. We feel, I think, very acutely the pain where marriages have been dishonored. We feel very acutely the pain where someone has broken the promises that they made to their spouse. And I want to say once again, that as a church family, we take these things very, very seriously. We take them very sensitively. And we want to handle these matters with as much warmth and compassion as Jesus shows. And as we look at him, as we fix our gaze upon him, there is really, really good news for us this evening. We're in a world of unfaithfulness, in a world of unfaithful relationships. There is a faithful God who not only forges a covenant with us as his people, but then keeps it at great personal cost. And the good news that he shares with us is that he will never leave us and never forsake us. That's the first uh, thing for us to look at this evening, actually. The seventh commandment points us upward to reveal the faithful covenantal God. In the history of salvation, we see repeatedly throughout God's word that he is the one that initiates the covenant promises that he makes with his people. And then he faithfully keeps the covenant promises that he has made with his people. And so the headline here is that one of the big reasons why Christians care so much about faithfulness within the covenant of marriage is because of the faithfulness that God continuously shows his people within the covenant that he has made with us. So in Genesis chapter 17, 14 chapters after the fall of mankind into sin, when God looks at humanity, he sees all of its sinfulness. These are the words that he speaks. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
God is speaking to Abraham, one of the spiritual fathers of God's people, forging his everlasting covenant to be God, not just to Abraham, but to be God to every generation of his people. To be God to them with everything that that entails, all of his provision, all of his protection, all of his loyalty, all of his care, and ultimately forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And his command for Abraham and his offspring, just a few verses later, is to keep God's covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. Keep God's covenant. See, God's everlasting, multi-generational, multinational covenant with his people does not have any entry requirements other than faith in the Lord and in his promises. But the covenant responsibility of his people is to worship him, to obey him in response to what he has done for us, and to do so to the exclusion of the gods of the other nations. There is an exclusivity to the covenant that he makes with his people. He alone is God. He alone created them. He alone made promises to them. He alone is worthy of their praise. And so a key part of keeping his covenant that he makes with his people is for his people to worship him alone and not to worship any other gods. And yet, as we read through the Bible story, we see time and time again, God's people fail to live up to their end of the covenant. They direct their worship towards other gods. Their loyalties are divided between the true God and the gods of the other nations. And there are some dire consequences for God's people because of their actions. And yet our kind and merciful God continues to relentlessly pursue and love his people. See, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God doesn't give up on the covenant that he makes with his people, even if his people sometimes do. And all that matters because he has designed the covenant of marriage between humanity to reflect something of that covenant relationship that he has made with his people. He has designed the covenant of marriage for a man and a woman to be relentlessly faithful towards one another in the same way that he is relentlessly faithful towards us. He has designed the covenant of marriage to seek reconciliation rather than rupture. He has designed marriage to reflect the exclusive dedication and the intimacy between God and his people as one man leaves his father and mother and becomes one flesh with his one wife and she becomes one flesh with him. And that reflection explains why unfaithfulness is an affront to the God of faithfulness. He is not a God of broken covenants. He is a God of kept covenants. And so adultery, sexual promiscuity, these might have been the ways of the other nations around Israel. These might have been the ways in which they were to excite and appease their gods, but it is not so with the true and living God. He forbids the sin of having sexual intercourse, craving sexual intercourse, or imagining the act with someone that is not a spouse within a committed marriage, because to do so would be a rejection of his character. To do so would be a rejection of his designs for marriage, the purpose, what it's supposed to reflect. Or putting it positively, every single faithful marriage where adultery is fought rather than tolerated, where loyalty, fealty, and commitment are upheld and championed, 
where sexual intimacy is sought and expressed and enjoyed, every single faithful marriage is in some way a reflection of the faithful God faithfully loving his people. Something in which he takes great delight, as should we. See, honoring the seventh commandment mirrors something of the God who gave it to us so that he is glorified and so that others might glimpse something of his faithfulness. That's the first thing for us to see this evening. Covenant promises are something that God loves and something that he wants his people to love too. And again, for many of us sitting here this evening who have genuinely healthy marriages, who are single as I am, many of us might think that when it comes to the seventh commandment, we've done pretty well and we are doing pretty well. We might think that our track record when it comes to avoiding adultery is pretty good and we're pretty clean. And that would be true if we were to detach the commandment itself from the purpose and the character of the commandment, which Jesus will not let us do. See, if we fast forward however many hundreds of years, about 1400 years or so, after the commandment was originally given, we see the religious leaders of the day doing exactly that, detaching the commandment from the purpose and the character of the commandment and the God who gave it. And so we see Jesus in response really unfold the commandment into everyday life for his people to expose the sexual sin in our hearts. And that's the second thing that the seventh commandment does. It exposes the sexual sin in our hearts. Earlier on, we read from those verses in Matthew. It might be worth turning there again. If you've got your Bible still open in front of you, turn to Matthew chapter five. It's on page 810 of the Bible that you were given when you came in, if you have one of those. Matthew chapter five. Let me read verses 27 just down to 30 again. Jesus says to the crowd, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. See, just like last week with God's command not to murder, Jesus tells us that the premeditation, everything that might precede adultery, looking at a woman with lustful intent, that is in its essence just as sinfully out of step with the God of covenant faithfulness as the act of adultery is itself. Even if our intentions are not to sleep with someone outside of marriage, for Jesus, there is no free pass to think lustful thoughts, even if you don't actually commit lustful acts. Jesus exposes the hypocrisy behind that line of thinking, a hypocrisy which completely ignores God's intentions, it ignores God's heart behind the laws that he gives. And Jesus won't let us think that way. See, God knew that divorce would be a very sad feature of our fallen world. He knew that these things would be present in the world that we live in. And he gave us very careful rules and laws to follow for divorce. 
when it must take place. But Jesus won't let us leave God's intentions behind the commands that he gives to one side so that we can observe the bare minimum of the command in a way that suits our own whims and desires. Instead, he unpacks and he unfolds these laws in a way that helps us to see that adultery is something not just that we commit with our bodies, but something that we commit with our eyes and our imaginations too. See, if the purpose of the seventh commandment is to allow for really clear, unambiguous loyalty and love within a marriage, then any sort of lustful thought or intent that disfigures the beauty of the gift of marriage. Even if nobody knows what I'm thinking, lustful thoughts deny and reject the covenant promises that have been made between two individuals, promises that God cares about a lot. And so Jesus' response is, cut it out. Literally, cut it off. Get rid of it. See, the Pharisees in Matthew were creating a casual, dismissive attitude and culture towards marriage and divorce. For the Pharisees, they completely abused the Old Testament provision for divorce by encouraging one another to end marriages as and when they saw fit. And that is exactly what Jesus challenges. He says, indulging a casual, self-centered approach to marriage and sexual fulfillment, where we can imagine or partake in sex with whomever we want, whenever we want, that defies and defiles the covenant vows that a married couple have made to one another. From lustful thinking, the physical act of adultery, everything that comes in that category, it all says that God is wrong not to give me what I want. God is withholding something good from me, something that I should really have, and I know better than he does. We're taking his beautiful and wonderful design of sexual intimacy within a covenant committed marriage and distorting it, replacing people with ourselves, imagining ourselves to be God instead of him, where we know best and he doesn't. And so as I listen to Jesus unfold the full extent of the seventh commandment, again, I'm not sure that I look so innocent anymore. I'm not sure that many of us sitting here this evening do. I'm sure we can feel the same tendency in our hearts to ignore God's design to suit our own fantasies. And God is only too aware of the damage that could be done within the community of his people if this sort of behavior is tolerated and unchallenged. And I'm sure we can imagine it ourselves. And I'm sure we've seen it ourselves. And it's for that reason that I'm really profoundly grateful for Jesus exposing the sexual sin in my heart and in all of our hearts. It cannot be tolerated. It needs to be forgiven. And that is why we can be ever so grateful that Jesus then steps into our world as the faithful husband of his people. That's the third thing for us to think about this evening. Jesus fulfills this commandment by obeying it perfectly himself. And then also by stepping in to take on our debt for the time that we have fallen short as the faithful husband of his bride, the church. So there's some verses in Ephesians chapter five. Again, why don't we turn there now in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter five. It's on page 978 in the Bibles you were given when you came in. 978. I'm going to read a couple of verses 
from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 31, it's on 979. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In the weddings that I've been involved in over the years, there has always, always been an inescapable joy etched all over the faces of both the bride and the groom. And whether I'm in the band, as I sometimes am, whether I'm best man, as I've been once or twice over the years, I don't really mind as long as I've got a front row view, a front row seat, so I can see the faces of both the bride and the groom, who are very, very obviously and clearly in love with one another. And I remember one friend in particular where the husband, who is not normally somebody who would be overly expressive, or effusive, he turned to look at his wife as she walked in, as she walked down the aisle. And as he laid eyes on her, he smiled and laughed with joy in a way that I've never seen him do before and never seen him do since. And it's with that same smile, it's with that same warmth, that same joy, much, much more so, that Jesus, the groom, looks on his bride, the church. It's with that same desire to love and to honor and to keep the promises that Jesus looks upon his people, that he looks upon you and me this evening if we have trusted in him. Faithful marriages this side of eternity still very sadly come to an end at the point of death. But the eternal marriage that we are promised for eternity here in these verses in Ephesians That eternal marriage between Jesus and his church is the marriage that all of these earthly marriages point towards. A marriage where death is no more. A marriage where the covenant promises do not end. They're not threatened, but they endure forever. And the only reason that any believer will be there hearing those wedding bells with new creation ears is that Jesus has been such a faithful husband towards us never leaving us, never forsaking us. See, his marriage to us, his marriage to his people is one where he takes on all of our debt. He takes on all of the adultery, all of the lust that we've indulged in our heads and in our hearts and in our actions. He takes all of that upon himself at the cross and he gifts us his righteousness. And I think that's really important for us. If we look around us, if we see the devastation that lust, adultery, divorce have caused, and if we think that there is no hope for the future, I think it's really important for us to know that Jesus' disposition towards us is not one where he taps his foot as a spurned lover, waiting for us to explain ourselves, waiting for us to make it up to him. See, when humanity turned its back on the God who made us, when humanity turned its back on the God who forged those covenant promises with us, Jesus sacrificially stepped into the world to be the climax of the love and the forgiveness that God has for us. 
in the marriage between Jesus and his bride, his disposition is to call out the sinful unfaithfulness in our lives and in our hearts, and then to extend us his forgiveness. I know one couple who very, very early on in their marriage had to dig very, very deep into Jesus' love, into Jesus' faithfulness, into Jesus' forgiveness in a moment where their marriage vows had been compromised severely by just one moment of adultery. And sadly, reconciliation in these sorts of situations is not always possible, especially if when there are continuous malicious patterns of unfaithfulness, especially if when there is no repentance at all. But this couple that I know, they looked at the way that Jesus had loved and forgiven his people. And they asked what it would look like to mirror and reflect that in their marriage to one another in the face of the adultery that they had endured. That drove their love and their respect for one another, to use the language of Ephesians. They asked what it would look like to flood their understanding of marriage and adultery with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to mimic Jesus in his instruction as their faithful husband towards members of his church. And after months and months of healing, and after months and months of rebuilding trust, their marriage very, very slowly, very steadily grew healthier and healthier again. And that, I think, is something of what it looks like to allow the gospel to shape and to define what a marriage looks like and what it means in the face of adultery and what it means in the face of the faithfulness that he commands for a married couple to display towards one another. It doesn't always work out like that. There are moments of real difficulty and hardship along the way. But for all of us, as we close our time together this evening, looking at the seventh commandment, what would it look like for us to flood our understanding of marriage? As singles, as those who are married, what would it look like for us to flood our understanding of marriage with the gospel of Jesus? What does it look like to be people who listen to God's instruction and respond. Well, you see it on the screen there, our last point this evening. Our response is to live out our calling as God's people, to live out our calling as those who have been saved by God, who have listened to his voice, and who champion and defend God's good design for marriage and his good design for faithfulness within marriage. We are to be fully-fledged fans of faithful marriage, either our own or couples around about us, inside and outside of church. We are to be purveyors of purity, adversaries of adultery, in our own minds and in our own marriages, and in the minds and marriages of those around about us. See, the seventh commandment would have us be unashamedly positive towards faithfulness within the marriage. And in turn, to be unashamedly negative towards adultery in exactly the same way that Jesus was, full of truth and full of compassion for others. And as I think about how that applies, let me finish this evening by speaking to three groups of people. The first group is the tempted. So to the tempted, how does this apply? Well, Jesus' teaching on the seventh commandment is a warning to us that lustful thinking, lustful actions are an affront to God, a malicious rejection of his laws, his love, his purposes within marriage, 
a malicious rejection of his character and the way that he has kept covenant promises. But Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' example, Jesus' love, the strength that he supplies us, that is everything that we need to fight those temptations and to know contentment in Christ. We don't do it on our own strength. We do it in his. We don't battle these temptations on our own. We do it as a church family. We don't do it to earn our forgiveness. We do it because we know his forgiveness already. So in his strength, battle these things. The second group is the wayward. So if any of us sat here this evening are already caught up in a pattern of lust, adultery, where these things that we've been looking at this evening, they already color our landscape and we see them only too clearly. Please see this command as a child of God, both as a strong rebuke and then as an irresistible invitation from God to turn away from our sin, to love and to obey him and his words instead. See, his covenant promises to us, fulfilled in the life and the death, the resurrection and the return of Jesus. They leave no room for sinful behavior, but they mean that Jesus always, always beckons us back to him to see what our God has done for us, as we were singing earlier on, to repent and to reach out to him and to others for forgiveness. And the third group is the brokenhearted. For those who are the victims, for those who are close to the victims of marriages characterized by lust, characterized by adultery, Jesus draws near to us in our pain. He draws near to us in our suffering. He promises us and guarantees us that we will know the fullest love with our creator forever. He knows that the pain that we feel is real. That pain is likely to linger in our lives and in our world until he returns to remake the world or calls us to be home with him. And yet in the meantime, his comfort, his peace, seen in his word, expressed in his life, seen, lived out in his people, that is the very place in which we stand firm. Christ, who he is, the promises that he keeps. We're held by his eternal love as we await the wedding that will one day see an end to adultery once and for all. That's a wonderful thing for us to fix our gaze upon. Let me pause there and we'll pray. And then we'll sing as we finish our time together this evening. Father, we thank you that you are the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Thank you that you have given us marriage and everything within marriage to be a wonderful gift that reflects these things. Thank you for your kindness. And we're sorry, Father, for the way in our hearts and in our heads where we have broken the commandment not to commit adultery, where we have in our heads indulged something that we should not have indulged. 
Father, we're very aware of the ways in which that has hurt you and hurt others. And we're so thankful to Jesus for coming and exposing that sin in our lives, but then offering to take the cost himself on the cross. Thank you that he is our faithful husband as we, the church, his bride, gaze upon him. Thank you that we can know his forgiveness. Thank you that when we are faithless, he is faithful. And we pray and ask, Father, that for all of us this evening in our own circumstances, you would help us to fix our gaze upon him, to know the promise of a new creation where all these things will be a distant memory. To know the wonderful promise of his healing touch in our lives, this side of eternity and in its fullest in the eternity to come. Please give us everything we need, Father, to be cheerleaders of marriage, to champion and cheer on every single step of the way. Help us to defend it with compassion. Help us to speak well of your design for our lives. Help us to do all of these things, Father, we pray, in the strength of Jesus, in whose name we ask for all of these things. Amen.